My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 189 of Legally Clueless. Thank you so much for rocking with this podcast. I really do appreciate you. I think I'm more in my feels about it because yesterday I was at the University of Nairobi for an event and I was giving a speech to a couple of ISEC University students members <laughs> and there was just so much love for this platform. So much, like it, it, took me by surprise not to say that I don't think it's deserving of love I just have never experienced it with such magnitude and just really hearing how people's lives have been changed by listening to this podcast by watching the video series etc it was humbling actually more than humbling it's it's like fueling you know I want to keep doing more and I want to especially now I'm in a zone of like innovating and trying to crack our workshops I've been pitching for partners for that not making much progress (laughs) and it was kind of getting to me and uh, so so it was it was fueling I think I well I guess I needed that so thank you for listening and for recommending i really do appreciate it you might catch the wind in the background it's such a windy day today but it's still so beautiful here so much green and it's just silent and so if you hear any movements (laughs) it's 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 the loud wind all right um remember you can officially join our community by going to legallycluelessafrica.com and signing up It would be wonderful to be able to share with you our newsletter that's going to be a bit more regular soon. So yeah, sign up, sign up, sign up. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. Our video series is pretty awesome. And we have three seasons out. Just go to Legally Clueless on YouTube or in the show notes, there's a direct link. I genuinely believe we have a really good show with our video series. My goal is... and and success for me for that would is many things but one of is to see it on a regional tv station you know and that's something i'm currently working on it's hard (laughs) it's so i feel like i'm in that point of the business where it's like pitching the new babies it's fulfilling definitely it's also a bit difficult but it can be done and so I'm going to I'm going to do that. Anyway, yeah, head over to our YouTube and watch our video series. I'm very excited for the story you're going to hear in this episode. Listen to this. My mom was the life of the party. I remember she would sit in the sitting room on some days and she just has a bottle of liquor in front of her. On multiple occasions, she forgot to pick me up from school. One day, I remember I had my friends come over home. Mom was taking a swimming on Sunday morning. So we woke up and we got ready. We were excited to go swimming. At this time, I think I was nine, nine years old. We were supposed to go swimming at about 10 a.m. And so 9 a.m. clocks, 10 a.m. clocks, she's not opening her door. 11 a.m. clocks, and I'm like, my goodness, what's happening? And so I go knock at the door, and she opens, and I knew immediately it was one of those days. And as we were driving, when we turned on the first turn from home, something nudged me and told me to look over at mom. I was seated in the front, and my three friends were in the back, and she was in the driving seat. And I looked over at my mom, and she had fallen asleep 
on the wheel. I believe this is probably the first story from a Ugandan on this podcast. And I don't say that with pride because shame on me. They're so close. <laughs> They're literally our neighbors. They're actually even closer to me because like my shags is pretty close to Busia, which is a border city. Yeah, so I'm honestly Adele. I should have recorded a lot more Ugandan stories by now. But here we are. That's one. And secondly, it's such a timely story for my life right now. I feel like the stories I'm recording currently, the universe is just bringing stories that on a personal level, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Why do I relate with this so much at this moment? But anyway, that is Ches' story. It's going to be coming up a little later in this episode. The song of the week. Ooh, let me first just say disclaimer. I have no idea what this song is about. <laughs> and it's in English. <laughs> So I really have no, I have no excuse, but I think more than anything, it has such a good vibe. I can't explain it. It reminds me of the vibe or the feeling I get when I listen to Jidenna's Vaporizer. I just feel like it's a Sunday morning. I am drinking fresh orange juice with ice. There is brunch on the way in my house and I'm alone with nobody, you know, like just happiness <laughs> in solitude. I get that vibe from the songs. I really love it. That's why I'm sharing it with you. If you listen more keenly than me and figure out what it's about, hit me up. Because I, 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 I'm just focused on the vibe. And it's by Alo. I shared a song of his a couple of episodes ago. But this one is called Tekkers, I think. It's T-E-K-K-E-R-S. Me, I don't know what this song's about. <laughs> Don't even understand the name, but the vibe. I connect with the vibe. So I'll put a link to the song in the show notes. So a quick catch up. There's so much I want to share. I just feel like I'm going through the most powerful awakening like of my life, you know, and it's wonderful some days. It's terrible. It feels disgusting on other days, but I've just never heard my voice this clearly in my entire 33 years of existence. But also I'm not surprised because I'm, I'm being very intentional about it with my therapists, with my spirituality and trying to figure out who I am as an African and where I came from. I added a gratitude jar a couple of weeks ago to my ancestral altar and that has been a really good exercise. I'm not putting in something every day. I feel like that's forcing it. Whenever I feel, naturally feel gratitude about a specific thing, I rush there and like I write it down full the paper and put it in the jar. So that exercise has really been good. I've been doing it for maybe just over a month now. It's been really helpful. I'm also trying to rebuild my routines. I slipped up and forgot that because of anxiety and, and honestly, just better time management, I need routines. I thrive in routines that are flexible, yes, but there's got to be some sort of structure. And I've kind of legged on that. What is legged in English? But yeah, slipped up or like slowed down on that. And I've also just in trying to rebuild my routines, understood that routines have got to evolve with you because you're evolving. Evolving, right and so the routine I had let's say two years ago no longer fully serves this version of me and so that's something I forgot to kind of like go back and check the routine and make sure that it evolves with me as well and I like that with routines it's easier for me to identify when I'm, when I'm not okay and that's been 
missing. I've kind of been stumbling into, oh crap, I don't feel good today. Instead of when I have a routine, if I slip up on a particular thing, then I'm like, ah, okay. And the particular thing for me has always been, it sounds so random, but it's spreading my bed. If I start the day and don't spread my bed, I automatically know something's wrong. Like I know my vibe is, something is destabilized within me. It sounds very strange. Well, my therapist doesn't think it's strange, but it does sound strange. I I, I understand this. But yeah, because for example, the last, maybe not this last week, but like a few weeks ago, I felt my energy dip. And when I looked at the state of my bedroom, it was just like piling clothes everywhere. I wouldn't spread my bed and I give myself a reason as to why I haven't done it or oh, whatever. I have work to rush and do or whatever. But that normally is my first sign. Like, mm, babe, <laughs> let's sit down with each other and like find out what's going on, babe. What What's not was not working you know that's one the second thing i wanted to share is something i'm not sure if i'm the only one who struggles with this although i did share it on my instagram and quite a few people said hey we we battle this as well and it's been happening a lot more in the last couple of months i have been questioning when good things happen to me and i've been wondering why do i question it when especially things that I've been intentionally working towards, it shouldn't surprise me when they're successful because like watch you water grows. And if you have a plan and you're intentional about it, chances are it's going to end the way you're trying to get it to end. But like a good thing will happen or an organization I've always wanted to work with reaches out or I get whatever opportunity and immediately I start doubting. I'm just like, ooh, this is not for me. And I've realized why it's been happening. Whenever those beautiful moments are happening, there's a negative voice in my head that all of a sudden finds its voice it's silent most of the other times but like when good things happen oh it has the strongest voice ever and it starts reminding me of negative things about me be it letting down people or procrastinating on certain things or past things that didn't go my way etc and what I used to do is engage that voice and kind of like challenge it like no that's not true and what the voice would do is like grab proof to back up the shit it's saying. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes, you know, those negative thoughts are not made up. Sometimes it's actually truth. And once I start engaging, I completely forget about what beautiful thing is happening in that moment. And so the negative voice has won. It's taken my attention. So what I've started doing is just acknowledging the voice like, okay, babes, I hear you, <laughs> but not now, not now. Right now, I am intentionally going to sit in this and It's been working also because of something that was mentioned by a storyteller who's been on this platform, Lynn Googie, which is that you control your mind. It's not the other way around. You tell your mind what to think. Your mind doesn't even know what the truth is. You are the one who guides it. And most of the times we abdicate that power and then the mind just runs wild. (laughs) it 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 creates thoughts from fears sometimes it's trying to protect you from yeah something you fear might happen sometimes it's just been a dick but you are the one who tells your mind no we're gonna sit in this beautiful moment we're not gonna address that now and I think with the work I've been doing I've managed to get to a point where I I'm in control I can hear my voice and I can use that voice to speak to my mind and tell it what we're doing, what we're thinking, you know, and tell it why we're doing certain things, not letting it run wild. I don't know, I just wanted to share that because it's it's just been quite groundbreaking for me in this moment. Okay, let's jump into part one of Cher's story. Part two is going to be in episode 190. Her story is about a convent, Jack Bauer, 
I'd never hear that guy's name again. And alcoholism. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. My name is Rebecca Macelli, but everyone calls me Che, and I'm from Kampala, Uganda. I grew up in Entebbe, that's where I was born. It was the original capital city of Uganda, where the airport is located. And uh, I think it was strategic because my father was a pilot. He's now retired. I grew up in a household of six kids. I have three brothers and two sisters. One brother is late, so we are five who are left. And, you know, I grew up in a very normal household. Mom, dad, my brothers. The, the eldest children traveled to the U.S. and the U.K. when I was really, really young. I think I was about six years old when they left the country. And many of them haven't come back to Africa since. So I really just grown up relating with them over phone, over email, and things like that. I, I grew up in a really, really fun family. My dad was not really strict, but he was that, you know, black and white guy, speaks when spoken to. My mom was the life of the party. She loved having guests over. Growing up, we had parties from Thursday. I think she was the, the, the person who started the weekend starts on Thursday. Thursday, we had parties. Friday, it's a barbecue. Saturday, we, we go visit someone. Sunday, she has another barbecue. You know, she always had people over, always wanted ex an excuse to cook, to dress up, you know, and things like that. She was a very hardworking lady. She had businesses. She was an entrepreneur. And, you know, that that's really what I really picked from her. And I believe I get my personality from her. I am exactly like my mom. Over time, we left the town of Entebbe to move to Kampala. And when we moved to Kampala, my father got a job to come work here in Nairobi um, as a pilot. And so in the house, it was just me, my mom, and my eldest brother who I follow. I'm the last born. And over the years, I began to notice that mom's character was kind of, can I say out of line? And on some days, she'd be bright and happy. The music is turned up. She's ready to cook and to clean. And the next day, her eyes are glassy. She's moody. She's sit seated, you know, in a dark room, curtains drawn, looking in the distance. And at this time, I was like eight years old. I didn't comprehend, like, what's going on with mom. I remember she would sit in the sitting room on some days, and she just has a bottle of liquor in front of her. But for me, it was normal because I saw aunts and uncles with alcohol and all that. And for me, I was like, oh, well, you know, she's just having a drink or whatever. But over time, certain things started to happen. I remember one day, not even on just, just on one occasion, but on multiple occasions, she forgot to pick me up from school. Um, she would forget to drop me at school as well. And every time I would knock at her door to open in the morning, you know, she'd open and have a maniacal episode. You know, she's screaming at me and all this. So she would ask the housemaid to take me to school. Or sometimes she would send like a special hire guy, a cab guy to pick me in the evening. But it became normal. You know, as an eight-year-old, I'm not going to scream at my mom. And one day, I remember I had my friends come over home for the weekend. We used to have sleep sleepovers all the time and so this one time mom was taking us swimming on Sunday morning so we woke up and we got ready we were excited to go swimming at this time I think I was nine nine years old we were supposed to go swimming at about 10 a.m and so 9 a.m clocks 10 a.m clocks she's not opening her door 11 a.m clocks and I'm like my goodness what's happening and so I go knock at the door and she opens and I knew immediately it was one of those days and I told her mom my friends are here we you promised to take us swimming and so she didn't even dress up she just got a nightgown she just covered her hair with a hair 
hairnet and we got into the car and she drove us to the place where we were going to go swimming. And as we were driving, it wasn't a long drive. It was about five minutes from where we stayed, where the swimming pool was. And I remember when we turned on the first turn from home, something nudged me and told me to look over at mom. I was seated in the front and my three friends were in the back and she was in the driving seat. And it was a huge car. It was an intercooler. And I looked over at my mom and she had fallen asleep on the wheel and I remember I had my little hands reach out uh, for the steering wheel it's a huge car Mm. reach out to the steering wheel and I think she blacked out for about 10 seconds and my hands are trying to control the car and then she opens her eyes and sees me controlling the car and then she hit me across the face and says why are you trying to drive you're too young and in that time my friends are in the back screaming I'm screaming my mom is yelling at me and it was just one huge mess to this day that incident is ingrained in our minds. You know, anything could have happened on that day. We didn't think about it much. We went, we swam, we ate chips and chicken, and we came home and and we moved on with life. Over the years, my relationship with my mom became strained because of that. You'd be afraid to come out of of the room. If she walked into a room, people would walk out because they didn't know what version they were going to get that day and so it really just was that's just the way it went and I do remember one incident when my brother now had gone off he was old enough to go to boarding school and I was in the house with my mom and my father had come home to visit growing up I've never heard my father raise his voice ever and that day I heard him raise his voice and I was asking what's going on and I heard him bang the door and I was so afraid so I peeped through the door through the little hole in the door And I saw my father with his crew bag and his uniform and he had locked the door and he was walking away. But I could hear my mom's voice screaming from inside the room. My father literally was away for about two, three days and he had locked my mom inside the room. In hindsight, I believe what happened is he wanted to keep her from accessing alcohol. That night, I remember I was asleep around 2, 3 a.m., And I heard a whimpering, like, you know, like a puppy that's locked in a kennel and it's, you know, scratching at the door and whimpering. And I said, because we used to have dogs and it's like, why are these dogs at my window? But I went to check the window and there was no, no, um, no puppies and no dogs. And then I kept hearing it. And then I found out it was coming from my mom's room and she was at the door scratching the door and whimpering and she was calling my name she was calling me becky becky and i just began to cry i was a nine-year-old i didn't know what was going on and she was just calling me becky like she was so faint and i was so worried i just got my blanket and i slept at the door i didn't know what to do eventually after the three days my father came back home life moved on as normal we couldn't do anything and you know that's really that's really what the tone was over the years i noticed my mother began to deteriorate she would lose weight. Um, she she had jaundice. She was light-skinned, but now you could see she was turning yellow. She became hollow, like her, her face, her features. And sadly, in the year 2005, she passed away from liver cirrhosis. And basically, it was organ failure because she went to sleep and she just never woke up. I remember I, I, I really didn't grieve my mom I, because, one, one, I couldn't believe that she was, she was gone. And also, I asked myself, could something have been done? What, what exactly just happened? You know, it's like she was here today and, and now she's not here. And after mom passed, life wasn't the same. I remember growing up and vowing I will never drink alcohol because of what it did to her. And uh, she passed away when I was 14. A year later, I was in my senior fall vacation. And a very good friend of mine from school 
called me up and and convinced me to go out partying and clubbing with him. I was 15 years old. He was a good friend of mine. 11 in the night he picked me up. We went home. Uh, uh sorry, we went out to party. And my father was not home. He was in Nairobi. He didn't know. My brother is like a nerd, loves his computers, loves you know, just doing his own thing. He barely noticed that I was gone from home. So I went out and I partied and I remember I had my first taste of alcohol and it was interesting. To say the least, you know, I never knew what intoxication felt like, so I didn't know that I was getting intoxicated. And so, you know, first of all I remember it was reggae raga night. I loved my reggae and dancehall. And so all I know is I was just going taking down those drinks and all of a sudden the songs were just sounding different and my shoulder was moving then my knee next thing i knew i was dancing all over the place and eventually my friend tells me che you're drunk i had about 12 bottles in about 2 hours and he told me che you're drunk i need to take you home and i remember i didn't want to go home but somewhere somehow i found myself home i don't know how i got home all i know is i woke up my head was pounding i was dehydrated I had the hangover of a lifetime. I had my clothes on. My bag was still in my hands, but the first thing that I did was reach for my phone, call my friend and tell him where are we today? And that was the beginning of the next harrowing 15 years of my life. I remember I continued drinking right into my A levels as a high school student, and by the time I got to university, I was a seasoned drinker. And the thing about Kampala is it's a very liberal party place. Mm-hmm. People go watch rugby at 10 in the morning not to watch rugby. They go to drink the beer at rugby club. Bars open at 5 in the morning. There are bars that are closed all night and open at 5 in the morning so that when they are bounced from this bar, they come to this bar. That's really what what the culture was like. I was really into little drinks like I don't want to mention brands, but I was really into sweet drinks because I'm a I'm a I'm a sweet tooth. I didn't like beer at that age. In my in my late teens, I was into the sweet stuff. By the time I got to university now, that's when I matured into beer, you know, the hard stuff. It's it wasn't it's not that it was even delicious or anything. You know, you're just after the feeling of being high. By that time, I was drinking a lot. I was drinking about 10 beers in one sitting of 2 hours. And then we move on to that's when I became accustomed to harder drinks like gin and whiskey and things like that and I started to build tolerance. So now the little sweet drinks were not working for me. I went to beer. Then eventually beer wasn't working for me. I started now drinking the hard stuff till I stopped punching the hard stuff and now I was taking it plain and you know straight. It was really it was a very interesting time of of growth <laughs> as as a drinker for me uh, because I I do remember thinking and wondering okay so I remember asking myself in first year the first university I went to and I said but why am I drinking mm-hmm. I remember the day I asked myself I had a crazy hangover and I said why do I keep drinking but still I I just kept on drinking and I couldn't tell why eventually it started to catch up with me I was missing classes I was waking up late always hangover I wasn't doing my coursework I wasn't attending class so eventually I didn't qualify to do my exams first year second semester and I was afraid of what I was going to tell my dad so I lied to him and I told him I don't like the course that I'm doing. Can we find another university? And he said, "Sure." And we got another university. I went to the university and same thing happened. First year first sem was okay. First year second sem everything went down the drain. I remember I chewed my tuition money and there's just something about tuition money. You will find money for everything. To do a business, you can replace that money. Tuition money is cursed. You will not even find a 100 bob to replace it. And so this time I I I was really broken because I said I don't know what I'm going to tell my dad. He just continued I stopped attending class. 
and he just continued to give me tuition money and I attended I attended university for 3 years but I wasn't going to school so basically I would get the tuition money pay for a hostel and just party the entire semester for the next 2 years for second year and third year but of course you can't run forever and eventually he found out and it was one big mess and they ended up shipping me here to Nairobi the city which i grew up loving so much that introduced me to reggae music you know and dancehall music now i was sent here on punishment at first i was told that i was going to be brought here to to do some work but turns out they enrolled me in a convent somewhere here and trust me to whoever is listening a convent is one of the most interesting experiences. It is utmost character development. I got to find out it was a convent somewhere in oh my gosh, I, I forget the place, but it had different branches. One was in near Strathmore, Mbagathi Way, somewhere there. But the main place was somewhere in in I think Westie, if I'm not mistaken. It's like a huge manor, and there are Catholic fathers who live inside there. But nobody ever saw the faces of the fathers, but we knew they were there. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is it's a convent mm -hmm. that houses these fathers. Huge place. It's got a pool. It's huge like a mansion. But they got some space to create like rooms and dormitories. So what they do is they get underprivileged ladies or women and then they put them there and then they make them do like chores for the fathers. Cooking, doing laundry and stuff like that. But basically it's classified as teaching them food and beverage science, catering, things like that. Listen, yeah, character development 101. I was not ready. I was waking up at 4 a.m., going to sleep at 11 a.m. Hard Do you know what they call hard labor? Hard labor. Listen, we were cleaning the, 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 were cleaning the chapel. Then you wake up and make breakfast for the Catholic fathers. Now understand, these are Catholic fathers. They don't eat ugali and sukuma. Breakfast is almond scones with baguettes and I don't know, a different thing every other week. And each meal is three course. You know, there's starter, then there's main course and there's dessert. It was insanity. I could not deal with it. Now, I wasn't in the, I was in the kitchen, but not on cooking duty. They put me on dishwashing duty. And when I tell you nobody washes a spoon better than me, listen, yeah, yeah, things were done different there. Life went on this way. And that is the first time that I ever experienced withdrawals because now I was in a place where I could not access alcohol. And I had my first mental breakdown. Looking back, I actually understand what um, that was a mental breakdown. Because I remember I was at my washing station, washing a spoon, minding my business. And then all of a sudden, I just began to cry out loud. And one of the nuns came running. I was like, Rebecca, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. And to be honest, I didn't know what was wrong. I just had this sense of overwhelm that I had never felt before. They asked me to go to my room and rest for the rest of the day. And all I could think about there now, I started, it was now clear and apparent to me what my life was of Che, we're not partying in Kampala anymore. We're not, we are in a convent. We are locked up in a convent and I remember after crying and when I woke up from my nap all I could think about was I need a cigarette long story short I found a way to bring cigarettes into the convent and somewhere somehow they were discovered by one of the nuns and yeah they were so traumatized they called my mom my, my stepmother and I remember the the senior nun I forget the word mother superior was talking to her and she was trying to be as politically correct as she could but you could hear the trauma she said wow you, you know your daughter is very very brilliant she can use her brilliance elsewhere in a creative way in Kampala you know um, yeah she has a very bright future ahead of her they were so traumatized because they wondered where did the cigarettes pass in our convent? And I remember all I could think about was, I want to go to Kampala. 
I'll find, I don't know what, just get me out of this place. And the next day I was on a bus back to Kampala and I got home and I was met by my dad. Of course, he was very disappointed because now he didn't know what to do. He literally cut me off. He said, you're going to be in this house, but you're not getting any money from me. I'm not going to be an enabler of your habits and all that. And now I became so defensive. And I said, Psh, these guys think I can't, you know. And that's when I started to to devise ways of how I was going to survive in Kampala. Um, that was the time. This was 2013. And that's when digital marketing was on the rise in Kampala. And I was the kind of person who would write, you know, little stories on Facebook. Because writing was my outlet. I would write stories on Facebook. And, you know, I had quite a reach and a following so at the time when digital marketing was on the rise in Kampala there really were no solid or concrete ways of of finding out how someone is qualified enough to be a social media manager so there were no need for qualifications or what they just ask show us your social media platform then I'm like that's it I got you you know and so that was it and I got my first job as a senior copywriter one of the leading digital agencies in Uganda senior copywriter and it was a great job I was earning a lot listen Adele for someone who's someone who's never start, studied and their first job the amount of money I was getting it was a lot it was about 50k Kenya shillings about listen I I was blowing salary in two days I would listen 50k I would leave it at the bar I had no sense of responsibility I was excited uh, you know it, it was insane and after these two days of drinking my father's cut me off I have no means of money so what I would do is I would stake the company phone with a money lender and then go borrow, borrow more money which I would drink in a week and so I have to borrow more money. So it was like a vicious cycle. By the end of next month, the salary I get has to pay all the debts of this month. And then I have to look for more money. So it was just a cycle. And at this time, there was so much pressure from home. My father is asking me, why are you still drinking like this? Who's even paying for, you know, for all these things? And for me, that pressure from home, I, I, I tried to escape from it. So my, my safe spaces were work and the bar. Now, even with all this drinking, there, there started to be trouble at work because now my boss is complaining. She says, you know, you come late. Your co-workers are complaining that you come and smell like a distillery. Like, what's going on? You know, and she really tried to tell me, if you need any help, you know. I said, nah, I'm good. You know, I'm good. And it didn't even take a long time. And I had another mental breakdown at my desk and I literally fired myself from that job. They told me go home and, and take all the time that you need to to rest and whatever. I never went back. I actually disappeared with their phone. They tried reaching me because it when you don't go to work they don't pay you. So there was no money for me to pay the money lender. So he sold off the phone. I burnt that bridge with that agency. And my father started asking me questions. Why aren't you going to work? And I would lie to him and tell him I'm on leave. <laughs> I really thought I was smart. I'm like, I'm on leave. But of course, he knew something was up. And somewhere, somehow, by God's grace, I, I happened to get another job as a public relations and digital media executive at another agency. Now, it had greater responsibilities, um, more affluent clients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said, Chair, this is a second chance. Like, we can't blow this. My goodness. It took just one month. Yeah. Blew it, like, up in the sky. I fired myself from that one as well. One day, I remember I had gone out partying. I was so stressed. My father, when I, came, I, I, when I was at the bar, I drank all my money. I didn't have transport money home. So, like, at about 1, 2 a.m., I called my Boda Boda guy, the motorbike guy that I knew. And I told him, hey, um, help me out. I have no money. Could you come pick me? I'm at such and such a bar and drop me home. I'll pay you sometime in the week. And he said, cool. And he picked me up and he took me home. And I get home and my father locked me out of the gate. And so uh, first of all, I'm intoxicated. And then I tell the Boda Boda guy, jump the fence, jump the fence and then open the gate for me from inside. And so he jumped. Now, when he jumped, he 
encountered our Askari or night guard, who is also a seasoned drinker and he had his bow and arrow because he was drunk and he had his bow and arrow pointed at this guy. He doesn't understand English or, or Luganda. He speaks only Swahili. The border guy is shouting in Luganda. I'm drunk. I'm screaming in English on the other side of the gate. So it was a mess at two in the morning. And eventually in all the screaming, I think the, the night guard discerned my voice and said, how can you be doing such things? You know, and I knew I was in trouble. Eventually he put down the bow and arrow, but he was ready to shoot and kill this guy. I told the guy, you know, I'll, 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 I'll pay you. I'm really sorry. And he said, no, this one is a free ride. Don't even ask me for anything. It's all good. We're good. And he got on his bike and he left. And so I really, really pleaded with the Askari and I told him, please don't tell dad whatever happens. But of course, I had to bribe him with my menthol cigarettes that he loved so much. And, I, and they were expensive at the time. And I gave them to him and I went to sleep. And I kid you not, six, seven in the morning, it's my door that woke me up. My father kicked down my door and he said, how dare you have a man jump over my fence? I've never heard my father raise his voice in my life. And he said, how dare you have a man jump over my fence? And he, I believe he'd been holding in so much and he let it out that day. He said so many things. He said, one day they're going to call me to identify your body in a morgue. He said, you are your mother's daughter. He said, you need to get your life together. Otherwise, you're going to die. You know, he said so many things. And at the end of it, he said, when I get back, you better not be here. Find a place to go. And he closed my door and left. I kid you not, I went back to bed. Because I, I didn't believe that my, my father is kicking me out of the house. Me, his, his little girl. Like, where am I going to go? Where am I? No, he was just mad. My goodness. At lunchtime, the housemaid came and said, Dad called and he asked me if you're still here. And that's when it sunk in. And I said, okay, okay. Like, I'm actually being asked to get out of this house. I packed up my stuff. I got a small bag. And I went to office where I was working. And I lived in office for a month. And it was, it was difficult, but I, it's, I had nowhere to go because I had no knowledge about the outside world. I had go, only grown up in my father's house. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about Ati, find a broker, CG, go do, I don't know, look for places in these neighborhoods, these neighborhoods. I only knew one neighborhood in my life. And so nobody in office knew that I was living in there until about the last week when the receptionist actually walked up to me and she said, oh, Che, you know, you can't live in office. And I really tried to deny and say, I'm not living in office. And she said, Che, this is like, we have CCTV camera. And she said, I'm the only one who has seen it. The bosses haven't seen it, but you need to get yourself together because the Askaris, the night guards of the building, are actually not happy. And that's when I knew I need to do something. And a friend of mine who, who uh, was looking for a house actually called me up and said, hey, I'm looking for housemates. I've got a three-bedroom place and I'm looking for you know people to pay this amount of money for four months. And thank God it was coming to the end of the month. So I told him this Friday, I'm going to get you the money. And so I paid him the money for the four months and then I moved in with him. But it was like frying pan into the fire because this guy was like a you know, he was, he was like a DJ. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you have free drinks, whatever bar this person is playing at. So yeah, I eventually ended up drinking myself out of another job and being homeless. Of course, there was no money. Over time, I wasn't able to meet the, the rent uh, requirements, paying simply even water bills or even contributing to food in the house. And eventually when it got to four months, uh, my housemate just said, Che, you know what? We can't do this just even just leave the four months don't even pay them just get your stuff and leave you know and before when i was in my dad's house leaving i had an office to go and hide in but now i had nowhere to go and so from july 2016 to february 2020 i literally lived on the streets of kampala yeah for about four years living on the streets is living on the streets 
um, it's finding each and every way to survive the night because that's what I was doing, surviving the night. The only way I could do that was the only way I knew how. I would be in bars all night, you know, sitting by with your charger on your phone, just just, just hanging, just hanging out. You know, when this bar closes, you walk to the next bar, you sit. Um, it, was, it was really tough. It was really tough. It, I was able to hide it for the first for the first year or so, but eventually people started to pick it up, uh, to pick up on something because I would be in a bar the whole night and then in the morning at around 7 a.m. I would find my way to an internet cafe and then find friends who are online and I'd say, hey, hey, it's Che, um, could you help me with like 10K? 10K is like, 10K is like 300 bob here in Kenya. Like, could you help me with 300 bob or could you help me with 600 bob? And I would be there until a person sent me money. So on some days I wouldn't be able to get money. Some days a person would tell you, okay, wait, I'm at work, wait till 5 p.m. And I'd have to sit in the cafe for, from 7 to 5 p.m. And remember, those are about 10 hours. And then when the person sends the money, you have to pay for the 10 hours that you've been in the cafe. And so I would walk out with like 100 bob. And in that 100 bob, like, over time, it just became, I would just think about drinking. That money would be for drinks. By drinks, I mean now it was crude sachets. I was not drinking all these high-end whiskeys and stuff anymore. No, I was drinking the little polythene crude things and smoking cigarettes. Over time, it just became worse and worse. Some days, bars wouldn't open, like a slow day like Monday. So I would find a commercial building, talk to the Ascari, give him maybe a, a talk to the night guard, give him a cigarette and tell him, hey, can I crash here for a bit? He says, okay, but as soon as it clocks 6.30, you have to leave. All I had was the clothes on my back. I had like two shirts and a pair of jeans and a skirt in my handbag. So my handbag was my pillow and then the shawl, or I don't even know where that shawl went. The shawl that I had was like what would cover me. And that's how I, I survived. I kept surviving, I kept surviving. But over time, it became so hard. I, I had like a sponge um, and some soap in my bag. So what I would do is in the morning, I would go to a restaurant and ask them, hi, can I please use your restroom? And that's when I would do like dry shower, dry, then change clothes like that. Um, sometimes I would sleep at, in case it found me in a bar on the other side of town, I would sleep like on a taxi stage. I would sleep at traffic lights. Because for me, I would drink to numb myself. So that in case I fell anywhere or slept anywhere, I didn't have to feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah, so that's that's really how it was. Going on, I, I started to offer myself to DJ at places. But of course, because these are low-end bars, they don't like paying DJs. So they would pay me with beer and like a plate of chips. And for me, that was good. And being a lady, first of all, you're a lady DJ. You know, guys are, are there and they're like, wow, guys, she's a DJ. And you know, wow, she knows her reggae, she knows her dance hall. So I would get like tips or guys would buy me free alcohol. Like, my goodness, that's my jam. And the next thing you know, like a guy has bought five beers and I'm like, okay. And you know, for me, alcohol was my thing. So that's really how I survived. I thought that this was just a bad stroke of luck that I had hit in life. And so I began to normalize it, to make the best of it. That's what it is. You know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, right? Because there was nothing I could do. I tried to um, apply for jobs. I tried to get into an agency. I got into the agency. They fired me after a week because I was coming to work late. I was coming to work hangover. I was, literally, I was literally doing nothing. At one agency, they found the, the boss found me sleeping at the door at six in the morning. And of course, even without asking any questions or trying to understand, if you found an employee sleeping at your, at, at your workplace at six in the morning, 
They're 500 question marks. Like you don't even want to know what is going on over here. So it was difficult not being settled and established in, a, you know, having nowhere to stay or even not even showering, you know, not, not being able to have a bath after drinking. I don't know how many mzingas of alcohol. You don't just walk into status meetings of executives and you start discussing ideas that are going to push them forward. And so eventually um, that, that really bugged me out because... I now understood that I can't hold a job. So now I just decided to roll with it, to roll with the times. So I was just drinking, passing out, drinking, passing out, drinking, passing out up until 2020. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. That is part one of Chess Story. Part two will be out in episode 190. So that's on Monday. Make sure that you don't miss out on part two. Like her, her story is so powerful. It just, it, it needed to be split up just so that we can like pause with this first part and then like go into part two. You know what I mean? And it's so interesting when she's describing Kampala, I feel like she's describing Nairobi. It's weird how normal our intense drinking is i remember when i was hosting a morning breakfast show and i lived significantly far from the station so i would be on the road at about 4 30 to make it to work by five and where i lived at the time there was this huge quite popular club and it's strange because people would park on the highway and cross the highway to get to the club i always found that to be so strange and that was the main reason i never went to that place i just i just thought this is so reckless <laughs> this is bananas and i always wondered that at 4 30 a.m on a Monday, who genuinely wants to be boozed in a club? So that's assuming everybody in the club is drinking, but I think that's a huge percentage are drinking alcohol. Obviously, they're the people who enjoy partying and not not drinking alcohol based that, but like a huge percentage are. And it always used to, I'm like, who wants to start a Monday like that? That surely this is not enjoyment and fun times. There's probably something you're running away from or you don't want to confront. And so this is great noise to keep you distracted, you know? I think we as Nairobians, I don't know about the other counties, but a great number of us are functioning alcoholics. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about because this year I always have a rule that I don't drink alcohol when I am experiencing high levels of emotion, be it happiness or the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> and this year I've been more aware of it just because I've really gone through, I have gone through it. <laughs> I eh, 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 eh. I've gone through it. And so I've had that top of mind like just knowing it can be a good distraction for what I'm going from what I'm going through and I don't want that and also I've always been cognizant of the fact that my dad was an alcoholic I think he was mm, okay he was abusive to my mom but maybe because I'm an empath I remember you know before he died trying to reconnect with him and being very aware that I remember one of the last meetings him and I had. And when I look back, one, I'm aware that he loved me. I'm aware that he was 
battling something internally and it had exhausted him um i think there were a lot of expectations he's first born in an african home from that generation ish <laughs> firstborn boy hey, 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 hey. worse just in hindsight analyzing that and then the alcohol just made me wary <laughs> of this alcohol thing as much as i found a red wine that i really love i'm trying to take it very slow with it though <laughs> also another thing that happened around alcohol that just scared me is discovering what alcohol poisoning really is so i i i had a friend or someone i knew pass away after a night out he used to drink a lot and went out with his boys back to the apartment all of them pass out he never wakes up and then they said obviously in those moments the first thing you think is oh he had an underlying condition of some sort and then it came out oh it was alcohol poisoning my first very ignorant reaction was what was he drinking where did he get adulterated alcohol i i wonder what brands were those were was it some of these fake brands that we see because that's also a problem that's what i thought alcohol poisoning was and i remember being in my bed at like 2 3 a.m it had really bothered me because i didn't understand his death and googling alcohol poisoning to understand it and finding out that the actual alcohol is a poison and so there's only so much of it your body can take this is a very layman description <laughs> So I'd urge you to go and read up some more on it. But like your body can only take so much of this poison. And sometimes you overload your body with it and it just can't take it. I was like, what the actual fuck? Nobody had told me that this is what alcohol poisoning is. And it just, first I was like, eh, universe, thank you. Because the amount of wild drinking I used to do in uni it was reckless and I wasn't even doing the things that you're told to do so like eat pace your drinking drink water understand your how much you can take ah I was not doing anything like that and so now that I know you know when you know better do better it's that type of situation for me and so that's why I think chess story is so important part two is going to be out next week well, in episode 190, I really can't wait for you to hear just how powerful it is. Remember, if you want to share your story on this podcast, in the show notes, there is a Google form where a link to it. Fill it out and I'll get back to you. You can also catch this podcast on Trace FM in Kenya. Just go to traceradio.co.ke. You can even download their app to make it easier for you to listen to Trace. And you can catch us there on Monday and Wednesday at 1 p.m. and 11 p.m. And on Fridays at 1 p.m. Can I just say a big thank you to Trace? They are such... <laughs> they are a partner from heaven. <laughs> such family and always just pushing me and growing me. I'm doing production work for one of their apps, like leading production for the Kenyan region. That's amazing. And yeah... I, I just think it's great to work with people who try as much as possible to keep growing you. Don't forget to check out our video series. Head over to our YouTube channel for that or go to legallycluelessafrica.com. They're there as well. And as I end this episode, I'm sending you tons of love. But more than that, as always, grace. That's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.